It's football season, and here at Tom Thumb, we're in the Cowboys spirit. We're giving you 10% off your groceries when you wear your Cowboys jersey on game day, so you can get a winning game day spread and still save money. Shop with your reward card and get fresh, boneless, skinless chicken breasts for just $1.99 a pound. And get fall favorite sweet navel oranges for only 99 cents a pound. Plus, Coca-Cola 12-pack cans or 12-ounce bottles are by two, get two free. Tom Thumb, proudly serving North Texas since 1948. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is Johnny Tan, author of From My Mama's Kitchen, Food for the Soul Recipes for Living. Welcome to my weekly From My Mama's Kitchen talk radio show. My guest for this morning is Jessica Teich. Jessica and I will be discussing her newly released memoir, The Future Tense of Joy. The book shares Jessica's story as a survivor and the story of a woman who haunted, bewitched, and ultimately saved her. The book raised questions about the societal pressures many girls and women face to be perfect and be invisible. Good morning, Jessica. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. How are you doing this morning? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. It is wonderful to have you on the air with me. The Future Tense of Joy is a beautifully written and easily relatable book about self-discovery and healing. So congratulations for that. Thank you. Please give us a quick walkthrough of your life from childhood to the present moment. I um, was born in New York, in a suburb of New York, a very beautiful green um, suburb but uh, very lonely. It was kind of a, I felt very much alone throughout my childhood. I, I kind of felt like I was on the margins, as if I was in the margins of a book, kind of looking in on life. Um, I was one of those people who kind of landed in a family where I, I didn't feel I quite belonged. And um, as I grew older, I was often buried in a book, or I was at dance class, and it was at ballet class that I met a much older man, we became members of the same ballet company. And um, when I was 16, I fell into an abusive relationship with him. Um, so I was repeatedly sexually assaulted and also battered for almost a year. I convinced my parents to take me out of school and went to Paris for the end of my senior year of high school. I then went to Yale for four years. I won a Rhodes Scholarship. I was among the earliest uh, groups of women to go to Oxford on a Rhodes Scholarship. Um, I got a graduate degree in Shakespeare mostly. I went to work at a theater in Los Angeles as a midwife to plays, helping writers develop and produce their plays. I then received a grant from the American Film Institute. They have a program called Directing Workshop for Women. I was uh, given a grant to write and direct a movie of my own. I met my husband. I had two daughters. One is 20 now. The other is 15. I wrote a book about having children called Trees Make the Best Mobiles, about raising your child in a less kind of commercial, uh, materialistic way with fewer things that light up and spin and speak to you, more time outside, more time with books, turning off the TV. And uh, now I've written this second book, which has taken me a, a very long time. Very, very interesting. So you do enjoy the concept of just the simplicity of life. And pretty much the nuclear family, 
moms and dads and children getting together. That's right. I, I One of the things I wrote about in my earlier book was just um, the idea that being present, paying attention to your family without devices distracting you, that that's kind of the greatest gift you can give to the people you love. And it's very hard, and I know very well the temptation of um, you know, planting my child in front of the TV mm-hmm. so I can take a shower or finish making dinner. Um, but I tried in the earlier book to describe ways of involving your child in your life, everyday life, so mm-hmm. that you have really meaningful time together, whether it's emptying the dishwasher or reading a book. Um, and in a way, my second book, the book that you and I are talking about today, mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. Um, kind of a prelude to the book about raising kids. It's sort of all that I went through in order to become mm-hmm. the mother that I wanted to be. Wonderful. When did you decide to become a Rhodes Scholar? I um, always wanted to go to England. I loved tea. I loved scones. I loved books. I didn't love mm-hmm. rain. It was very cold there, and um, that was hard. But I'd always sort of wanted to go to England. And as I um, made my way through my academic career at Yale, mm-hmm. I discovered that there were a couple of fellowships you could apply for that would send you to England for two years to do a graduate degree. And um, the reason I wanted to be a Rhodes Scholar particularly was that the Rhodes was the only one of those scholarships that allowed you to serve on a committee when you got back, if indeed you Mm -hmm. won the scholarship. And I really Mm -hmm. wanted to be part of the selection process. And in fact, next week, I'm going to Seattle to serve on one of these Rhodes Scholar committees. Very interesting. So did you ever run into President Bill Clinton? I did. I met him when he was in the uh, Oval Office at a mm-hmm. reception in Washington um, for Rhodes Scholars. I can't remember. We were celebrating some anniversary. And at that time, there were still very few women Rhodes Scholars. The, it required an act of parliament to change mm. the will of the founder of the Rhodes Scholarship to allow women to be part of it. And there was a lot of resistance to women in the beginning. So that's um, kind of interesting when you look at this election season yeah. and see you know, that there's still a lot of resistance to women having equal opportunities. Right, right. One of the things that I discovered was Robert Reich was one of the Rhodes Scholars as well, and he was part of the group that went to England with Bill Clinton. And according to him, that when they came back, and this, of course, everyone was very young at that time, and they all knew that Bill will one day be the president of the United States. It was kind of interesting. I think it is interesting because it's a group of high achievers, but there's very often mm-hmm. one person who just is even more dazzling than anyone else. <laughs> and I also think, um, you know, what's interesting, and I, I'm going to remind mm-hmm. the candidates of this next week when I go to Seattle, there are many, yeah. many people in the room who are as interesting or more sometimes yeah. than the people who win. And you and you see these yeah. people again and again in life, which is wonderful. Yeah. I think someone who's who's really committed to his or her ideas is just bound to rise. Very interesting. Are there some specific criteria that one needs to be aware of before becoming a Rhodes Scholar or pursuing, basically, to be a Rhodes Scholar? Yes. You know, the the terms of the will, the Rhodes Scholarships Mm -hmm. were founded by someone named Cecil Rhodes who made his money in um, the diamond mines of Africa. And... um, 
one of his requests was that people be committed to fighting the world's fight. Often that's been interpreted as being in politics, like Bill Clinton. Many, many mm-hmm. senators and Congress people are Rhodes Scholars, judges, many people in the military, governors, heads of universities. But I mm-hmm. always felt there was another interpretation of fighting the world's fight, which was um, you know, something that could be accomplished through the arts, too. Right. And so right. for me, the trickiest moment in my interview was when the head of the committee that interviewed me kept saying, yeah, but nobody gets to become a writer in life. What are you going to do if you can't be a writer? Are you going to be a newscaster? Are you going to be a um, a journalist? All of which I think are wonderful right. things to be. And I have done a lot of journalism in my time. But it was very interesting to me that they thought that um, writing was a sort of second-class career. And I, I very much felt then, as I do now, that, that writers mm-hmm. and other artists can change the world as as well as anybody else. That's very, very interesting. So what prompted you to pursue Lacey's death? Um, you know, Lacey is, uh, just for your listeners, my, my book is a memoir, but it's kind of a shared autobiography because it's my story and the story of this woman. I call her Lacey. That's not her actual name. She was a complete stranger to me, and one night when I couldn't sleep, as many moms know those sleepless nights, I went downstairs and I sort of stumbled upon this obituary of a young woman. Um, I learned about her life through reading this tribute to her um, after her death, and I discovered that she was this incredibly charismatic and radiant and talented and successful young woman, much loved by all of her friends, also a Rhodes Scholar, younger than I. And when she was 27, she threw herself from a building here in uh, Century City, California. And what's more, she was a newlywed at the time of her death. And it happens that she chose to die on the very day that her new husband was arriving from London to Los Angeles to begin their new life. And initially, it was the beauty and lyricism of this obituary that caught my eye. But as I read more deeply, I started to become really intrigued by this woman and the fact that she seemed to the outside eye to have absolutely everything one could want in life, and yet she chose to end her life, and she actually um, died on the 4th of July. So she chose to free herself um, on Independence Day, and that just started to haunt me. I found I couldn't shake her, and that's kind of why I went in search of of the truth behind her death. That's very interesting because there's a lot of symbolic actions that she did, like she chose the 4th of July, for instance. There's a certain amount of liberation that goes with that. In your follow-up in terms of her story and so forth, that's where you delve tremendously into her story, and that led you to basically write The Future Tense of Joy. So let us know why did you decide to do that. I I felt like she was beckoning to me. I couldn't seem mm-hmm. to shake her in and in the days and even weeks that followed t- happening upon this obituary. I I just she was occupying my thoughts. Um even if I was making lunch for my daughters or sitting in the car waiting for them at the bus stop. Um and so I I did something very unusual for a suburban middle-aged housewife. I went out and hired a a private detective. And um, it was through him that I began to connect to her survivors, including her husband, who lives in England now. Um, 
I spoke with her best friend. I spoke with her surviving siblings. And it was through learning about her that I started to realize in a way that I wasn't alone, that my feelings of, of, of um, you know, not quite being good enough, never being mm-hmm. quite deserving of um, other people's love or, or admiration, certainly not feeling deserving of the Rhodes Scholarship, I started to realize that that was something that many people shared. In fact, it has a name, the imposter syndrome, that many people have this sense that they're, um, you know, that at any moment someone could unveil them as being a fraud in some way. And I think mm-hmm. that was something that I really suffered from. Very interesting. So you went through a sort of a voyage of self-discovery yourself, and you basically saw yourself in a mirror. Exactly. I think that's right. And I think that often life presents us with these moments or images or encounters with strangers Mm -hmm. that can kind of unlock a problem or a mystery in our own lives. And I came to see that Lacey was that for me. And I started very early on calling her Lacey. As I said, that wasn't her real name. Mm -hmm. In fact, Mm -hmm. the only thing her sister asked in my long conversations with her was that I changed her sister's name in the book. So I did. And for some reason I called her Lacey. And over the years, as I found out more about her and the ways in which she was helping me recover my own life, I started to see how the word Lacey resembled the word key. And I realized that she really was the key to opening the door, some doors in my own life that I thought would never be unlocked. I always thought that I would feel almost like an outsider in my own life, Mm -hmm. even though I had so much to be happy for. But I was sort of cut off from my husband Mm -hmm. and my children, my friends, my dog, all these wonderful, loving presences in my life because of PTSD, post-traumatic stress Mm -hmm. disorder. I was a survivor of this sexual abuse when I was a teenager, but I never got any help. I never talked Mm -hmm. to anybody about it. I thought I should be able to handle this, and I'm not going to think about it. And, of course, with trauma like that, you can put it out of your mind, but it, it haunts you. It, sure. uh, you know, it kind of it becomes part of who you are, and I think I needed to confront it, and that, that was the door that Lacey helped me to walk through. It's natural when someone goes through a traumatic experience to protect themselves. That's a natural human instinct. And the further along you are in your life, if you don't sort of express yourself in some ways, I guess, in like you were talking about in terms of seeking help, that protection becomes very difficult to break. Lucky for you, in your case, you had gone through life, and at that point in your life that you were able to somehow, through lacy situation, saw the opening from the wilderness. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, that's very beautifully put. I think um, what I saw through her was a way to understand my own life. And basically, I worked in the theater for a long time. And there's a, in the theater, there's a scrim where there used to be a kind of membrane, a very filmy membrane um, that kind of can separate one scene from another. And I felt like I was looking at my whole life through this scrim because I could see my beautiful children and my wonderful husband and my loving friends through this kind of, I say in the book, through the smoked glass of an antique mirror. Mm -hmm. But I couldn't Mm -hmm. really reach them. 
I couldn't, I felt like um, life was on the other side of this membrane, tantalizing, remote, welcoming, beckoning to me, but somehow I couldn't get there. And I realized that the only way for me to get there was to go through this pain and accept that I had suffered this trauma and had been very frightened and very felt very alone for a long time. But now I was here, I was safe, I was loved, I could move forward in my life and find mm-hmm. joy, even though I had felt so much sadness and so much isolation. And I think that many of these things are the product of isolation and that the antidote mm-hmm. to them, the cure for them, is connecting to other people. Certainly that's true. Obviously, you were living life to that point through what I would call a guided happiness because you were so guarded in so many ways because you were afraid of being hurt again. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yes, I think that's right. And I think one thing my husband used to say to me was, other people always know more about us than we think they do. And I always thought that was an interesting idea. And as I've gone around the country reading from my book Mm -hmm. and talking with people, I've re-encountered some people from my past, including a woman who lived next door to me at Oxford. We were both Rhodes Scholars. And she Mm -hmm. got up at the end of this reading in Boston and said to me, I always felt you were trembling on the other side of that wall. And I thought that was a really moving image because I think so many of us are trembling on the other side of a wall. And I think one of the things my book is about is how important it is if you feel someone trembling on the other side of a wall to reach out to that person. I think very often we sense that other people in our lives are troubled and we don't quite know how to how to reach out to them. And so we, mm-hmm. we, we don't. Um, and one of the interesting things I learned and very tragic things about suicide in writing about Lacey was mm-hmm. that very often if someone's in crisis, if you can help that person through the first 30 days of that acute crisis, mm-hmm. that person very often will not try and kill himself or herself again. So mm-hmm. it's all about getting in there when someone's really in trouble and trying to support them, trying to help them, telling them you see them, telling them you love them, and um, and very often that can bring somebody back onto the path towards wellness, towards security, mm-hmm. towards mm-hmm. contentment. So true. You don't have to be a trained professional to do that, because a lot of times when we go through life, we tend to be too busy with being preoccupied with all the noises around us that we don't really pay attention to our loved ones. I think that's true. And in fact, I just saw someone, I was in Washington uh, for a book event, and someone said to me that in the middle of reading my book, she put the book Mm -hmm. down and called her daughter, one of her daughters, because she said, I realize I'm not in touch with them. I adore them. I love them. I think about them all the time. But just taking that extra step of reaching out and and saying, I'm thinking of you. How are you doing? I think that the value of that, it's so casual, it's so Mm -hmm. easy, but we don't always do it. And I think it has enormous benefits to both people, to the person being reached out to and also to the person who's, who's giving, who's being generous and attentive. That's what your book brings forth. It's beautifully written. It invokes that feeling of each individual that reads your book to really be mindful, sort of a introspective looking back and say, wait a minute now, uh, am I really paying attention 
am I listening in anticipation to reply or am I listening to learn? And if you're listening to learn, then you realize that, whoa, all of a sudden all those sort of ambient noise dissipates and you're able to see the true authentic person behind the other side of the curtain or the film that you were talking about. And then you can really be of a genuine help in this case. I think that's right. And I, I one thing that her um, closest mm-hmm. friend said to me in my first conversation with him, I asked him if he still thought about Lacey. And he said, yeah. I think of her all the time because I think we have mm-hmm. to keep these things alive. I think we have mm-hmm. to ask ourselves questions about other people and are we doing all that we can to be right. of service to them. And that was very moving to me. And I felt one of the reasons I wrote the book was to try and keep her alive and to keep mm-hmm. alive mm-hmm. the idea of um, of reaching out to other people and not being afraid, even sometimes to seem awkward or even intrusive. I always think now, based on my research about suicide, that it's mm-hmm. better to slightly blunder um, than to stand by. Now, in your own personal journey, I'm sure you have gone through the highs and lows and so forth, and there's no one particular point in life that extremely low, extremely high. However, those are memorable moments. Whether it's good or bad, they are memorable moments. As we go through our life cycles in rhythm, what are some of your lowest points and the highest points in your life? I think for me the lowest points are um, that year when I was 16 and 17, when Mm -hmm. I was... Uh, seeing this man every day because I was part of the same dance company and going to rehearsal. Mm-hmm. And then I would follow him up to his attic bedroom and he would molest me and I mm-hmm. would resist and he would beat me. And then I would go home and mm-hmm. if I had a bruise or something, I would, you know, my mom would say, where did you get that bruise? And I would say, oh, we had a, I bumped into something in rehearsal or something. I wasn't able to tell my parents what I was going through. Um, because like a lot of perfectionistic girls, I thought I could handle it. And I thought if I can't figure out a way out of this horrible situation, nobody can. I think when you're 16, you think you do have all the answers, not in an uh, arrogant way, but you've just done, you know, you've been pretty good at solving child-sized problems in your life. And I didn't realize that this wasn't a child-sized problem and that I really needed the help of grown-ups. So I never reached out to my parents. I never reached out to my teachers. I didn't want to trouble them. I didn't want to disappoint them. And mm-hmm. eventually, I felt that this man, not not uh, willing to, but would accidentally end up killing me because he was mm-hmm. so out of control. And that's when I went to my parents and said, you know, I, I, can I go to well, one of these programs for college juniors in Paris, even though I was a high school student, because I knew mm-hmm. I had to get myself out of there. So that time was the lowest, definitely the lowest time in my life. And I think, for me, the high points are, you know, those moments of real connection to other people. I think mm-hmm. um, the first night I met my husband, um, mm-hmm. I think having my daughters and realizing that my body, which had been sort of a crime scene, if you will, because mm-hmm. of all the the violence that I had been through to see that I could produce this beautiful, glistening, perfect person um, was really a, a miraculous moment. 
and I feel like there are these moments all the time. I just didn't I just mm-hmm. didn't know that that the way the light hits a tree or the way a baby toddles past you and you see the baby swept up mm-hmm. in its parents' arms. These are such beautiful, blessed moments and I really mm-hmm. wasn't alert to them before and I that's something I'm really um trying to devote myself to now, to really seeing there is so much joy. And I think if you've survived something or are in the middle of something, trying to survive yeah. it, it's, it's hard to believe that there's a way out and that you will be free. There is freedom from fear. You, you will feel joy. You will be loved. You will heal. You will be whole. I think it's very hard to see that when you're kind of at the bottom of a well. That's very true, though. And what you were talking about, sometimes we as individuals, as adults especially, we either marinate ourselves with past memories or we fantasize about the future or, in this case, worry about the future, and we fail to take advantage of the beauty that's right in front of us, which is the present moment. I think it's very hard to be present. And I live in Southern Mm -hmm. California, and there are all these methodologies some of which I believe in, some of which I've tried to practice myself. Um, yeah. But I, I feel like by looking at the trauma that I went through, by recognizing that I had survived it, um, that I was never going to leave it behind, I think many people think that healing is kind of a linear process and you, you sort of go from the place where you're broken to the place where you're whole in a kind of you know untroubled um, passage. Mm-hmm. I think that healing is very cyclical. I think that some some days are better than others. I think that sometimes um, something will bring back a memory of feeling afraid or feeling unsafe. And I often think that people are taught in our culture to just try and leave their troubles behind them, so to speak. And my feeling is you, you need to incorporate what you've been through into who you are. Um, it can mm-hmm. make you stronger. It can make you more empathic. And um, I think if we all wait to shake off the burden of our past, we're just going to be waiting our whole lives. Well, the memoir has some really funny moments. For example, you struggle in giving your daughter the freedom she craves. So please share those moments with us. You know, the the book opens with me stalking my own daughter, if you can believe it, um, <laughs> at the bus stop where she's perfectly safe. But I, I she's 12. And she's sort of poised on the brink of adolescence, which is the moment that I feel like I was sort of swallowed whole by these Mm -hmm. uh, violent episodes. So the world seems very, very threatening. And for some strange reason, I decide that I'm going to hide in the bushes at the place where she's getting off the bus stop. It's a new bus stop, and she wants to walk on her own to dance class. She is also a dancer, as I was. And um, I decide that I'm going to hide in the bushes and watch her walk from the bus stop to the dance studio, even though it only takes eight and a half minutes. And I do this for days and days and days to the point where everybody who works in that area becomes accustomed to seeing me in my in my kind of spy cap sinking down into the bushes. And then one day my daughter says, you know, Mommy, I can see you. I see you. I know you're there. <laughs> and I, I'm like, oh, no, how can you see me? I sort of duck down lower into the bushes. And she says, besides, it's a crosswalk. It's not a crack den. And I think, how does my 12-year-old even know what a crack den is? 
But I realized <laughs> she's ready. She's ready to mm-hmm. be free of all my right. fears, which are another form of PTSD. And in a way, I was ready to be free too. And in mm-hmm. the way that they can, I think sometimes our children can unlock some of these problems for us if we allow them to. You know, the Buddhists believe that right. your children choose you. And I kind of felt like both my daughters, for different <laughs> reasons, had chosen me to teach me something. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. you know, and after that day, I no, not only no longer hid in the bushes, I began this journey, which is, you know, the journey of my book, to try yeah. and free myself from these fears because I was afraid of everything. I was afraid of pit bulls and doorknobs and um, the ingredients in ice cream, which makes the, uh, whatever it is that makes the ingredients mm-hmm. stick together. I thought that must yeah. be toxic. Everything seems so toxic to me. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I was trying desperately to protect my children in any way I could. And, of course, the most difficult thing for me anyway as a mom is knowing I can't protect them and I've got to trust them and trust the world. And, um, you know, I didn't want them to be to be living in, in the shadow of, of a violence that they didn't even know anything about because that was the violence in my past that I had carried forward. Your husband, Michael, obviously he's a humorous person and he tried to assure you that as parents, you two really don't have much of a control of everything. And he talks about taking a giant leap of faith. So share those greater insights about that. You know, I sometimes think that we choose in our partner someone who can sort of help us unlock whatever Mm -hmm. that knot is from childhood. And we can either drive each other crazy because we understand each other too well, or we can use that understanding, even if, it, or especially if it comes from the same kind of childhood trauma, to help free each other. And I think that Michael was the person who um, sort of helped me, helped open that door, because he's just an incredibly stable, buoyant person. And he, very early in my daughter's childhood, he would go around taking pictures of them next to those terrifying yellow caution signs. So (laughs) one daughter would be standing next to this sign uh, at the beach that said, you know, dangerous wave. And she'd be grinning little six-year-old with her mermaid ringlets. And he would photograph that. He would photograph her in front of a sign that said, you know, caution wild boar at the head of a trail in Hawaii. And we have this whole gallery of photos of my daughters in front of these terrifying warning electrical shock, you know, dangerous cliff. Um, because he was trying in a humorous way to say the world yeah. is safe. You can collect all these these photos of your daughters in front of these signs, but what's going to keep them safe is a feeling inside them that they're bigger than anything that can happen to them and that they bring to whatever situation they face, whatever challenge confronts them, all the skills that we as parents have tried to develop in them from the time they're they're young. So Michael was kind of the perfect person for me to um, sort of balance out my DNA. And in fact, in the book, I talk about a study that was done at a university in Switzerland where they put a pile of dirty, stinky, smelly T-shirts from men, (laughs) um, you know, made a whole pile of them, and brought women in, um, single women, and and these women anonymously chose T-shirts out of this stinky pile. And almost without exception, the woman chose the T-shirt of the man whose DNA would balance hers, would offset the Mm. deficits in hers. 
And I think that's so interesting because it's sort of about the power of of animal attraction, but also the way in which we can sometimes sense if we get out of our own way and turn off all those ambient noises, as you put it, we can almost on an instinctive animal level, we can sense that someone else is safe, that someone else can help. And, um, you know, I, I think it's very important, especially in our culture where I think we don't teach our children what it means to really love someone or how you choose the person that you're going to spend your life with. You know, sometimes one just has to turn off one's mind and and lead with one's heart. And um, I think I was lucky enough, despite all of my my terrors, um, to to lead with my heart when I found Michael. That's beautiful. It reminded me about the fact that I speak about love and fear. And these two concepts guides our decision-making. They're two but equally separate forces. And whenever we make decisions, we look through those lenses. Either we look through the lens of love or the lens of fear. Neither one of them are actually bad because when you look through the lens of fear, in the case of your daughter, you were monitoring her because you have good intentions. You want to make sure she's safe. In so many ways, that's love as well. Not so much just fear, but it is love for your daughter, and you're wanting to look out for her. I think it is love, and I think, um, I think in my case, it was it became a, a real burden to her, mm-hmm. and I didn't want her to grow up thinking that the world was full of threats and vendettas. Yeah. Because her world wasn't. Her world was very cozy and safe and full of mm-hmm. books and and trees and you know i didn't want her to to inherit my unhappiness my anxiety because i think these things are you know generational a lot of these things right. get passed down and and in fact the man who beat me whom i call joe in my book um that's mm-hmm. not his real name his father had beaten him and so right. Right. he had perpetuated the cycle of violence and i felt in my own way i would be perpetuating it if I passed on these terrors to my daughters. And, you know, I think as parents, the world is a scary place. And it's been, Mm -hmm. you know, the past few years, one of my daughters was born a month before 9-11. So her whole life has been colored by that tragedy. And, And even though I think there's tremendous beauty and love and goodness in the world, and I, I want them to lean in to that, to really lean into the love, to lean into the light, to, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's much easier if you do to then take the dark and troubling moments in stride. And I really believe what I saw once on a postcard in a bookstore, I was there with my mm-hmm. older daughter when she was little, and it said, you are bigger than anything that can happen to you. And I really believe that. I really believe that we bring to these crises all kinds of tools um, and experiences and the love of the people around us. And we don't always remember that in the moment of crisis, that we have a lot of weapons with which to battle whatever the challenge is. So true. And one of the things you brought up, which is very interesting, I think in the end, these are life lessons that has to be taught at home by the parents, not in school. And I say that respectfully. I'm sure some school curriculum covers certain things, but there are certain things in life that you cannot just simply outsource. That's the parents' responsibility. 
I think I think the you know the best thing you can do as a parent is demonstrate what you think it means to be a human being. And mm-hmm. I think you have to do it every day, and you have to do it by reaching out to people who are in trouble, as you and I said earlier, um, and, mm-hmm. and even in simple things, like what you choose to have next to your bedside. Is it a book? Are you reading in front of your kids, not just urging them to read so they can do well in school? Are you volunteering? There's you know, so much research on the value of service to kids mm-hmm. as they're growing up, and especially for these uh, perfectionistic teenage girls, if, you, if you're of service to someone else in a, in a real way, in an ongoing way, um, it's a great um, antidote to self-criticism, to all the self-focus mm-hmm. that teenage girls can fall prey to. And, you know, one of the things that, uh, speaking of schools, that I regret is that many schools mm-hmm. um, have a service requirement, but you only do it long enough to get to fulfill that obligation. And very often that's not long enough for the relationships that you're building to really take root. Mm -hmm. I think that Mm -hmm. service can't be just another thing you do on your college resume. It has to be a real ongoing commitment to other people. And and, and so that has obviously all the benefits it does to the people that you're reaching out to, but it has enormous benefits to one's own heart and soul and spirit. And I think as a parent, it's really important to demonstrate every day to your children what it means to be a good, you know, thoughtful, civil person, Mm -hmm. because there aren't enough examples of that in the world. And I think you're right, it has to start at home. Um, and, and, And it's something we can do even when our children are young. I think that, that, for example, I am always losing things. um, And I used to (laughs) yell at myself in front of my daughters, like, oh, my God, I can't believe I forgot my keys again. uh, How how am I ever going to find them? You know, I would panic about these things. And and then I discovered that what I was modeling for them was how to get angry at myself when I made a mistake. And I never Mm -hmm. would want to get angry at them if they made a mistake, nor, of course, would I want them to be angry with themselves. So I realized I had to sort of model more compassion for myself so that they could see in me a kind of forgiveness for mistakes that I would want them to have for themselves and for all the people around them. So true, though. So true. Do you have any advice for people who are currently experiencing life challenges and struggle to find joy in their life? I just want anybody who's uh, troubled um, Mm-hmm. to reach out to someone else. There is somebody in your life who wants to help you, who knows how to help you, and mm-hmm. I feel like that's the most important step. For me, what kept me in this sort of chamber of horror, if you will, going upstairs day after day to this attic bedroom to be molested was the sense that no one could help me, and I had to try and help myself. And I now know that that's a complete um misconception. I think that engagement with other people is the way out as well as the way in, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I think that for anyone, no matter what crisis they're suffering, I do think one can find freedom and healing and hope and love and joy. Um, The name of my book, The Future Tense of Joy, suggests, you know, the act of time. It's about trying to live with the questions live with the crises, live with the anxieties, but knowing that there is a future tense of joy when you will feel freer, when you will feel more settled, when you will feel safer. And um, there's a great um, 
saying I'm not sure from whom that says, you know, um, no step is lost on this path, and even a little progress is freedom from fear. And I think that's true, that every day one can make progress towards the goal of being free of these fears. And even if one slides back, has a terrible day, has a desperate thought, has an angry encounter in the supermarket, you, you still have to keep moving forward. What usually holds someone back from moving forward? I think maybe fear um, that we're so damaged that no one will mm-hmm. ever love us, that mm-hmm. the damage that we've been through or done to other people is irreparable. Um, I think we forget to believe that our lives are fluid, that we're always changing. That's probably the only constant is the is change, is fluidity. We can keep reimagining ourselves. We can keep reinventing ourselves. I think that, that it's possible to go back to people, as I have through the book and in going around the country, mm-hmm. people I haven't mm-hmm. seen in 40 years, and say, this is why I did that, and mm-hmm. I'm so sorry. And the amount of acceptance and forgiveness in the world is, is just unquantifiable. There's an endless supply of forgiveness for people who are willing to say, you know, this is why I did this, out of fear, out of, right. out of a misperception, out of anxiety. Um, it's been so freeing for me to go around the country and see people from all different moments in my past and be able to give them my book and have people write to me, as someone did this morning, and say, I get it. I see now yeah. why you seemed so afraid, so broken. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's the idea of someone trembling on the other side of the wall. If someone's trembling on the other side of the wall, you've got to break through that wall and reach out your hand. Right. So true. Time is an ally. It's not an adversary in this particular case. I think that's true because time, uh, I think there's some conception, especially in our sort of rapid-paced mm-hmm. society where everything is, you know, is uh, fast-forwarded, um, that we've got to get there to the solution right away. And I don't, I think that's antithetical to healing. I think healing is a very time-based process, a very gradual mm-hmm. process, um, and uh, fitful. Some days are much, much better than others. And, you know, I used to feel regret that I gave up so much of my life to the sadness mm-hmm. of my past. But now I kind of think that's it took the time it took for me to heal, for me to see right. um, the beauty and joy that was right here waiting for me. And I can't regret that time. I don't want to give my sadness any more of my my time. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think about... Um, I remember reading when Nelson Mandela was liberated from prison, and he Mm -hmm. said immediately he forgave his captors, and everybody around him said, how can you do that? They They took years and years of your life, and he said, that's why. I don't want to give them any more of my time. And I kind Mm -hmm. of feel that about the violence in my past. I just didn't want to give it any more of my time. Very, very interesting, very insightful. Are there some first steps to take at the beginning of a healing process? I think getting enough sleep, which none of us does, is really important. (laughs) I know it sounds silly, and those of us who are moms, we particularly probably haven't had a full night's sleep since the birth of our oldest child. Um, And I think we don't. It's another way in which we don't treat ourselves compassionately. We don't allow ourselves to go and take a nap 
in the 45 minutes before we have to get to the bus stop um, to pick up our kids. So I, I think really being good to oneself, forgiving oneself, forgiving oneself for getting into trouble, for making a mistake, for making a poor choice, no matter how enormous it seems, it is forgivable. And I think the minute we, we start to forgive ourselves, we become, um, you know, transformed by the power to change. And, and I think there isn't anybody who's done anything or been through anything who doesn't have the capacity to change and to make whatever it is better. But I do think the first thing, other than sleeping, which I'm still struggling mm-hmm. to do well, um, is, is, is really to ask somebody for help. And it doesn't have to be a professional. It can be just a neighbor right. or another mother you see in the parking lot or, um, you know, somebody that you have a funny conversation with um, in the post office. It, 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 it can be that person is waiting to help you, but you have to open your eyes. That's true, though. And, again, it's about conversations. This brings us to the people that are on the receiving side, or I guess in this case, if you would want to call it on the receiving side. How should people help and comfort those who are going through a bad experience? I think that it's important just to listen, as you said earlier. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. it was Fran Lebowitz who said most of life is talking or waiting to talk. And yeah. I think listening and waiting to talk are very different things. I think it's really mm-hmm. hard to turn off the anxiety in one's own mind to really hear mm-hmm. someone else's troubles. Um, but I think as a as a companion in this journey, the best thing you can do is, is listen to someone else and let them know that you're really listening. And, um, you know, and then together make a plan for uh, who, you know, finding out how to go Mm -hmm. to the next step, whether it's to consult a professional, whether it's to join a program, whether it's, you know, whatever it is, does this person need to be on medication? Does this person need a support group? Does this person need to get out of a bad relationship? Does this person need more childcare so that he or Mm -hmm. she can do whatever needs to be done for himself or herself? I think there are all all these solutions and more. But the first thing is to really have someone be able to tell you what it is they're struggling with and just be able to hold that anxiety. Mm -hmm. I think as a mother, there are moments where my daughters want to tell me things that I almost don't want to hear because it's Mm -hmm. inconvenient or it's upsetting or it's disappointing. And uh, I swore if I had children of my own, I would want to be a parent to whom they could say anything because I didn't feel mm-hmm. I could say anything to my parents. And I, I feel that's one of the reasons I got into the trouble I did. And so I mm-hmm. feel like being someone to whom another person can say anything is the best kind of friend you can be without judgment, without impatience. There's no time limit. There's no set goal. Just to be able to absorb the information when someone comes to you to talk about his or her pain, I think that's a, the greatest gift of friendship that you can give. What would you like for the readers to gain from reading The Future Tense of Joy? You know, I'd like people to to laugh because I do think the book has has a lot of humor in it. Um, yes. Several people have told me that they, several men actually, have told me that they <laughs> cried several times, which I found surprising but also very moving because I think mm-hmm. the book um, is is very personal and very intimate but also very universal. I don't think there's anyone in life who hasn't felt trapped or misunderstood um, or hopeless. 
and and the book mm-hmm. is very much about the way out of that that there is enormous joy waiting and and so i hope people who go through the journey of the book with me will know that they too can arrive where i am which is in an imperfect mm-hmm. life perfectly in, imperfect um, with lots of confusion and occasional chaos and, and disappointment um, and missed appointments and all of the things that we all struggle with as parents and partners, but with lots and lots of happiness. And I, I think that's possible for everybody. It's true what you say because we all go through our life cycles and their ups and downs and so forth, and your book certainly is a wonderful guide. And being able to look in the mirror and say, hey, I'm not alone in this deal. This is life. This is how we're going to have to do it. And let's pick up and get going. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Nobody nobody is alone, and nobody is without scars. And mm-hmm. someone once said to me, years before I was ready to really understand it, that the psychic wound is the way in, that the thing that you're the most ashamed of or embarrassed about or feel the most regret about can often be the way into the, um, into the next part of your life, into the, yes. into the freedom, into the healing, into the hope. The first step is you can't live your life in denial. I think that's right. And you, and you, can't, you can't live your life alone. Right. I think anybody who's alone is... Um, is suffering because i think it's that connection that dance that dance of belonging that really defines us as people it's the quality of our engagement with other people that mm-hmm. makes us who we are and you know it's easy to say these are clichés but clichés right. have a have a, a deep kernel of truth to them there's a a real um weight of wisdom in them and i think this idea that you can't go through life alone. You've really got to reach out. You've got to be willing to take some chances and be vulnerable and believe that there is courage in being vulnerable and in being transparent, that no secrets that we try to hide are more important than the freedom that comes from telling the truth and trying to move forward. So true. Where can someone go to buy your book, get more information about you, and keep up with your latest happenings? You know, I have a website, and I would love to hear from people, um, and, and um, that is www.buyjessicateich.com. My book is available on all, at all the places you love to buy books, including your independent local bookstore. Um, it's also online and on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. So I hope people will buy it, and I, I look forward to hearing from you, from all of you readers. Please, please buy it, and please let me know what you think. Wonderful. How has writing The Future Tense of Joy impacted you personally? Uh, I think it's just given me a great sense of freedom. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I think it's been amazing to me to go around the country to community centers and bookstores and share the book with people because almost inevitably there's someone at the end of that reading who comes up and says, this is my story too, or I've struggled, or I'm in a, in a relationship that isn't working, what do you think I should do? And obviously I'm not a therapist, I have none of those credentials. The only credential I have is that I've been in the trenches myself, mm-hmm. and, um, mm-hmm. and it's very moving to me, speaking of connection and engagement, that these complete strangers are willing to approach me at the end of a reading and say, 
um, you know, what do you think I should do next? So for me, it's given me a chance to give back. And, um, you know, someone once said, don't waste your pain. And I had all this pain, obviously. I I, I didn't want to waste it anymore. I wanted to use it to pay it forward towards somebody else's future. So the book's really given me a chance to do that, and I'm incredibly grateful for that. That's terrific. You're a wonderful writer. Do you feel the process of transference? Many times people talk about write what you're feeling. That way you are sort of expensing it out. Do you feel that way? I think everybody is a writer. I think many of us don't feel very confident in our writing, but I think mm-hmm. writing, putting things down in whatever way you do is incredibly therapeutic. It doesn't have mm-hmm. to become a book. It doesn't have to be a letter to someone you feel you've wronged. It can just be scribbles on the back of a restaurant menu. Um, I always encourage people that I talk to on my book tours to, to, to try and do some writing because I think it's, it's very clarifying. And, and the minute you, you put these thoughts out, they become external to you. You don't have to carry them around in the same way. And one of the great pleasures for me of writing my book is my life is starting to make more sense to me. I understand mm-hmm. the choices that I made, some of them terrible, some of them better, um, I it, 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 I see a pattern there. I understand, and and that's enormously liberating in and of itself. To just say I don't have to do those things anymore because I know now why I did them. But for me, the writing really helped with that. And so even if you don't think you're a writer, I say to people, go to your computer and just spill your guts. You don't have to do it every day. You don't have to do it for more than five or ten minutes. But very mm-hmm. often. Um, just visualizing, externalizing whatever it is that's troubling you can help give it scale and shape, and and then it's sort of not consuming you in the same way. Wonderful advice. How does your daughters look at your expressing yourself in this book? How do they take it? You know, um, for my older daughter, who's really a character in the book, the book is sort of her mm-hmm. story and my story, and then the stru- story of this stranger, Lacey. Um, I think it was very brave of her to allow me to tell her story as much as I did. And over the many years it took me to write the book, I, it took me longer to write the book than my younger daughter, who's 15, has been alive, which is mm-hmm. a long time to work on a book. I certainly don't recommend that. Um, although, again, I think it just took the time that it took. But um, over those years, I would say to my older daughter, you know, you're in the book. This incident is in the book. This incident is in the book. Is that okay? And it always seemed okay until the the very last night before I had to send the final pages to the printer. (laughs) I couldn't make any more changes when my older daughter said, you know, by the way, I don't want my name in the book. And so I Mm -hmm. had to scramble all night to think of another name that was the same number (laughs) of letters. That was the only way it could be replaced. And so I was thinking of Annabelle and Marina. And meanwhile, she Mm -hmm. happened to get a good night's sleep, having disclosed this to me after all these years. (laughs) And she woke up the next morning and she said, you know, Mom, I think it's okay. You can use my name. But I Mm -hmm. think it's hard for them to be exposed. We're all so private and and teenagers and young women especially so. But both of my daughters want to be teachers, and I think they felt that the book could really help someone or teach someone in a way, Um, and I I hope it does. So I think in that sense they gave me their blessing, and um, Mm -hmm. I, I feel so lucky because I feel like they went on this journey with me, and they can see that you can spend 16 years 
working on something, and, and then it, you can finish it, which I wasn't always sure I would. I think they saw me in my pajamas <laughs> late at night, a lot of the time pacing in my little office. Um, but mm-hmm. I think that they've seen, you know, that you can persevere and that something good will come of that. So I'm glad that, that they did. Fantastic. What is next for you? Um, you know, I'm going to continue touring and promoting my book, but my real, the real cause I'm promoting is, are, is all the things that you and I are talking about in terms of mm-hmm. people feeling better and, and helping themselves out of troubled situations. And in order to do that, I'm hoping to go to community centers and college campuses. Um, as you know, sexual violence is a very big issue on college campuses at the moment, and I really want to go around the country and, and talk to young people about those challenges. So this is just the beginning of a new journey for me. Um, and the book, I, I think, is a way into the next part of my life, which I hope is is about service, is about advocacy, um, and especially for people who've been the victims of, of sexual abuse. Wonderful. By the way, we're coming close to the end of the hour. Since our show is about people, family, and living life, would you like to share a recipe for living with our listeners this morning? Um, sure. You know, I'm a terrible cook, and a friend recently <laughs> reminded me that, do you remember when they used to send you those little samples of cereal and stuff in the mail? She remembered that when my husband and I were first married, I used to go out to the mailbox every day in the hope that some small sample of food would be sent to us so I could serve it to him for dinner. So I'm sort of the last person one would ask for for a recipe as such. But I just think um, feeling freedom is is the key mm-hmm. to happiness and doing whatever it takes to get free of whatever is holding you back. I think that that is the recipe for happiness in life. Beautiful. Short, simple, and sweet. And I'm sure you're living that every day of your life. I'm trying, and there are good days and bad days, but I'm definitely trying. <laughs> Any last thoughts about the book? Um, I, I just hope that it really, uh, that it really speaks to people, um, because even though it may sound dark, it's a very much a book filled with light and hope and humor. And, um, you know, I, I just hope people will really uh, reach out to find it and enjoy it. And I, I, I just wish, if anybody's listening who's in trouble, um, uh, after you the program finishes, pick up the phone and call someone because there is someone in your life who's ready to help. So true. Jessica, thank you for the wonderful recipe for living and for spending this hour with me on From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. To all our listeners, please join me next Tuesday morning. My guest will be Linda Ignis. She is the author of The Ramayana, a new retelling of Valmiki's ancient epic. Linda and I will be discussing her life's journey as a writer into all things sustainable. For additional information about this show and future shows, please go to fmmktalkradio.com. Thank you for listening and have a blessed week. Jessica, it has been a true pleasure. Thank you again and have a blessed day. My great, great pleasure and and you too. Be well. Thank you. Bye-bye.
When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can seem intense. Like breakup R&B intense. I thought you said you loved the sweater that I got you. If you didn't, you could have told me. Geico makes it easy. Just go to Geico.com anytime to update or check your policy without all the extra drama. I even had a gift receipt. They have one goal, the White House. And it all comes down to one night. Decision Night in America. Join Lester Holt, Savannah Guthrie, and Chuck Todd calling the states and mapping the electoral race to 270. And the NBC News political team bringing you the latest from campaign headquarters and key battleground sites. Who will become our nation's 45th president? Time to decide. Live tonight for Decision Night in America. Tonight on NBC5.